podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. Well, good morning, New Hope. It's a delight to be with you again here this morning, both in person and also online, as we continue to read together this letter from Peter. So far, if you've been following along, Peter's called us all kinds of names, hasn't he? He's called us exiles, children, foreigners. Last week, he called us babies. And today, he calls us living stones. Living stones. If you're a baby boomer, perhaps you might be thinking, cool, I'm happy to hang out with Mick and Keith. Or if you're a fan of Thor Ragnarok, perhaps you're thinking maybe you've got more in common with Korg than you thought you did. Or if you're a plant lover, like I am, maybe you're thinking about these. This is a picture of my lithop at home. Lithops is the botanical name. Um, The common name is living stones. They're an unusual type of succulent that's found in the high desert country of southern Africa. Whatever being called a living stone evokes for you, let's hear what Peter has to say about it. Won't you join me as we open our hearts and minds and hear Peter speak to us from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he's precious, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they, as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, this is a pretty rocky passage, isn't it, if you'll forgive the the pun. Here we have a bunch of living stones, which kind of sounds a little bit disturbing to me. We've got some stone that gets laid in a place called Zion, and that's the cornerstone, which incidentally is a stone that didn't pass quality assurance and got rejected. I wonder why that was. And this faulty stone is thought to be incredibly precious to some people, but for others, they can't help but trip over it. And all of this stuff about stones gets written by a guy called Peter whose name means rock. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? This passage of scripture to me reads like one of those massive spaghetti junctions you might see if you fly over Los Angeles. One of those intertwined parts of the road network where huge highways come together and cross over. 
In this case, this passage is part of the Bible where multiple massive themes in the Bible meet and cross over. Two of the big themes are about stones and the temple. The people Peter was addressing would have heard him talk about a stone and connected it to the hope that God would one day return to Zion, which is Jerusalem, and come back and dwell in the temple. Peter makes this connection himself explicitly when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, see, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a foundation stone. He's signalling that the long-held hopes of the Israelites that God would once again rebuild the temple are about to come true. And my goodness, that must have sounded like amazing news, like extremely good news. But it's not the way that Peter's listeners, or perhaps us, are thinking. Peter points us to the temple not as a model from the past that we should return to, but as a lesson that we should heed. I want to tell you a story this morning that demonstrates that the temple is a wonderful idea that goes horribly wrong in the hands of ordinary people like you and me. And how it's important that we understand this if we're going to understand what Peter's saying to us. Like everything, it frankly starts off incredibly well. We see God in Genesis creating the cosmos as a temple. The cosmos as God's own sanctuary for himself. And then as time goes on, God chooses Israel as his chosen people and he instructs them to make a tabernacle, which is basically a portable temple, in the desert so that his presence can dwell and travel with them. Eventually, God leaves the Israelites to the promised land where the portable tent of the tabernacle becomes a permanent, magnificent temple built of stone and wood and precious metal, a place for the presence of God to dwell forever. The first temple gets built by King Solomon and then sacked by the Babylonians and then rebuilt by the exiles who return, only to be destroyed for a second time by the Romans in 70 CE. And I think it's really hard for us to really understand the significance of all of that to really get what the depths of the crisis of about, is about. Because I'm kind of thinking, okay, so your precious temple got destroyed. Like, it's only a building. What's the big deal? What we miss, I think, is that this isn't about some architectural collateral damage that happened because of conflict between warring regional powers for land and resources. This is a crisis about faith, this is a crisis of discipleship. The first temple gets destroyed because Israel stubbornly refuses to live in faithfulness to God and to the practice of God's ways of love and justice. And so God, he sends prophet after prophet and they warn the Israelites until they're absolutely hoarse, but they pay no heed. The prophets implore the people to turn around and repent but eventually, God, in the face of their refusal, allows Israel to be destroyed, allows for the temple to be razed to the ground, allows for Israel's citizens to be sent into exile, and my goodness, that's bad. But what's worse is that this marked the end of Israel's life with God as they knew it. 
the Israelites are shaken to the very core of their being. They're left wondering, well, who are we and where is God? Are we still the people of God? It felt like a kind of national death. And over time, Israel grieves and wrestles and reconsiders and repents and reformulates. And eventually, stone by stone, they rebuild the temple just as they rebuild their life with God. That's the second temple. And nearly 500 years after that second temple gets built, 50 years before the time of Jesus, Judea, Jerusalem and the temple come under Roman rule. And about 20 years before Jesus gets born, Herod the Great gets appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate and he decides to renovate the temple. As you do, you get a new piece of property and you think, my goodness, let's just replace the kitchen and the bathroom. But this is no small renovation. Herod undertakes a massive renovation to the temple, significantly enlarging it. He richly decorates it until it's described as one of the most beautiful buildings at the time. He employs over a thousand priests to do the work. And if you think your renovation at home took a long time, Herod's takes 82 years to be completed. So significant are the changes that the temple gets rebranded. It becomes Herod's temple. So when we talk about the temple in the first century, during the time that Jesus was alive, we're not talking about a pure religious place separated from the world of politics. We're talking about a temple that existed under Roman rule that was controlled by a series of Herodian puppet Jewish kings whose conversion to Judaism was completely questionable, who had a habit of killing members of their own family who threatened their power, as well as killing large numbers of Jewish religious leaders who didn't toe the Roman line or who got in their way. This is the temple during Jesus and Peter's lifetime. It's a place of deep and profound conflict, embraced by some Jews as the place where God's divine presence rests and rejected by others as a tainted front for Roman power and oppression. And as a result of that, understandably, the temple becomes the focal point for a huge amount of protest and discontent. There are a number of very significant uprisings of Jew Jewish rebels centred on the temple itself, which is why when Herod does the renovations, he builds a massive Roman fortress next door that holds a garrison of troops so that when the trouble comes, the soldiers can be as close as possible to quell it. This is the temple at the time of Jesus. This is the temple that Peter knew that he visited with Jesus. It's not a peaceful, picture card, perfect place of piousness. It's a lightning rod for a people whose lives are being reshaped by the power of the Roman Empire. Which is why we get all those stories in the gospel about Jesus and conflict with the temple. Like when he goes in and he turns over the table of the money changes and he kicks the seats out from underneath the people who are selling the doves to be sacrificed. And with the dust still in the air, Jesus angrily says, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, you've turned it into a den of robbers. 
This is Jesus' harsh critique of religious leaders who have thrown their lot in with the empire, happy to consort with the powers and the principalities of darkness while lining their own pockets with the proceeds of exploitative Roman taxes. And just like before, God sends a prophet. And just like before, the prophet isn't listened to. In fact, the prophet is rejected soundly. Scripture tells us that after the chief priests heard what Jesus said about the temple, they immediately looked for ways to kill him. So what is the point of the deep, long history lesson this morning? Well, part of the point is that I want to demonstrate that we have a way of taking something that is so good, like seeking to honour God by creating a special place for God, to worship God, and then we corrupt it. We corrupt it because, like with the first temple, our worship doesn't lead to discipleship. We come to a place and we focus for a time on God, and we tick that box and then we go out into the rest of our lives to live as we please. We corrupt it because like the second temple worship of God gets corrupted by money and power. The temple becomes a sort of platform for powerful people to exploit the vulnerable. And God just becomes another thing that we can manipulate to get our securities and our desires for significance met. And I'm sure that we've had enough high-profile scandals among evangelical leaders in the last 12 to 18 months to know that that's true, even now. So when Peter comes and he writes to us in his letter, come to Jesus, the living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, he's not inviting us to take up the old model of the temple corrupted by hypocrisy and power and wealth. Peter is saying, as the history of the temple demonstrates, whenever the foundation stone of the temple is laid by human hands, the building is flawed and it will fall eventually. Everything will come crashing down. What we need is a different foundation stone, a new foundation, a cornerstone upon which we can build a spiritual house that will last for eternity. He's telling people that God's promise to Israel has been fulfilled in the Messiah that Jesus himself, as we sing, is the cornerstone that God has laid in Zion. Therefore, all who belong to Jesus now belong to the people of God, the true temple, because the one true God now lives in them. And this is good news. The good news for us is that the temple has been built a third time and not in Jerusalem, but all around the world in everyone who follows Jesus, in you, in you. And this is a radical message. This is an enormous truth that I think it takes us as followers of Jesus a lifetime to truly comprehend. 
that the God who created the cosmos wants to come and dwell within us to make this fragile bag of flesh and bone his sanctuary, to enliven our stone-cold hearts with the warmth of God's life-giving love, enfolding us as living stones into eternal spiritual home. And who does God seek to embrace in this way? Who does God breathe on and turn into living stones? Is it the powerful? Is it the rich? Is it the righteous? No. It's the ones like Jesus who are rejected. The ones the powerful people have no use for. The ones that got turned away at the gates of the temple because they couldn't even afford to buy the dove, the smallest of all the sacrifices from the temple sellers. It's all the outcasts that Jesus spends so much time with. The sex workers, the disfigured, the incurably ill, everyone who has been written off by those around them as not worth saving. It's stones like Peter, impulsive, opinionated, getting it wrong and then missing the point. I mean, one minute Jesus is calling Peter the stone upon which he's going to build his church and the next he's telling to get behind him. He's become a stumbling block to his path. One minute Peter boasts that he'll never, ever, 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 ever leave Jesus. And then the next minute he can't even stand up to the questioning of a servant girl. It's not that Peter was so virtuous. It's not that Peter was so strong or intelligent or gifted. It's that God chose Peter. God chooses him. It's God's choosing that makes all the difference. I can't help but notice a thread running through all of the stories about Israel's disobedience and the temple being destroyed and the stories of the failure of religious leaders who are corrupted by power and wealth. You see, their foundation was never God. It was always about them. Always, from the very beginning, it was about them. It looked like something on the outside, But when you dug down and looked at the foundation, it was always about them. They chose themselves as the cornerstone. Their lives were built upon the rock of themselves. And as such, their whole life become a project of building up their own egos. When we choose ourselves in this way, our lives will always be distorted by needs that will never be satisfied. But when God chooses us and God takes up and makes his home within us, our lives are watered by a stream of living water that will never run dry. And we are enfolded by the love of God in a home that brings healing and wholeness and health. Listen to the words of Peter this morning. You are a chosen race. You are chosen. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's own people. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of the darkness of a life focused only on ourselves and into the glory of the light of God. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now mercy has been poured out upon you. Grace upon grace, gift upon gift. Not because of anything that you've done, but because God has laid a foundation, a cornerstone at the very centre of the world. And he invites you to build your life upon that rock. Let's pray. Loving God, this morning, by your spirit, we invite you to whisper into the ears of each one of us, deep into our spirits, Lord, that you have chosen us, that we are your chosen ones, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, God, because of what Christ has done. So, Lord, we receive this gift freely and we experience the joy and the freedom that it gives us the freedom to lay it all down and to let your love and mercy and grace flow into our lives, the freedom to stop white-knuckling it every single day of our lives, to try and make everything turn out okay, but to surrender into the loving arms of you, God. We are your chosen people. You are forming us into an eternal spiritual house, God, breathe a fresh wind of your spirit over over our cold hearts. Enliven those of us who have lost the fervour of our first love. Come, Lord, and minister your grace to us. We thank you for the gift that it is to hear these words this morning and to focus on you, the very foundation at the centre of the world. Lord, come and be our cornerstone. In every part of our life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.